The Athletic. This is Talk of the Devils, the Manchester United podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ian Irving, Andy Mitten is with us and... We need to reintroduce you to an old friend because Carl Anker is back. Hello, Carl. Hello, mate. How are you getting on? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Not too bad, thank you. Can I sense new surroundings that you're in? Your backdrop <laughs> looks different to, to before. Yes, I have, I've moved I've moved flats uh, in the uh, winter break, so to speak. So now I'm in one of the uh, fun little skyscrapers in the city centre of Manchester. Blimey. How high? 33rd floor. Wow. So uh, I can't I can't use my phone in my flat anymore because I'm above one of the phone towers. So it's got to be by WhatsApp all the time now <laughs> in that sort of bizarre, surreal, dystopian future we live in. <laughs> yeah, that is quite something. Andy, are you a fan of skyscrapers? I feel like there might be a book on that shelf behind you on them. There's about five books on them. I love skyscrapers. <laughs> Good to see you, Carl. I'm very envious that you're living on the 33rd floor. Yeah, I've I've always like well loved Manchester and skyscrapers, and I was I was frustrated that it was a city without skyscrapers. That didn't stop me, however, uh, making a T-shirt of Manchester skyline in in the mid nineties. I'm not an artist, but I tried to draw it and and made like two hundred T-shirts, and there's probably hundred and ninety eight of them somewhere. <laughs> and my mates didn't slate me while I was doing it. They were going, "Yeah, that looks all right. That looks all right." No. And um, they absolutely hammered me after I'd paid for all these T-shirts. <laughs> and Manchester wasn't a city of... of I remember a 12-storey building going up about 95 near Albert Square and being really excited about it. So to see all these towers going up, yeah, I, I can't lie, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Manchester's starting to look like Philadelphia yeah. or, or Chicago. I, I do have some reservations, I'll be honest, about where the money's coming from and whether Mancunian's... Uh, can afford to buy some of the the apartments but visually i think it's fantastic i think it's really exciting that all the time there's huge skyscrapers i went to university sheffield and driving back over snake pass dropping into manchester seeing the manchester skyline now compared to when i was there in sort of 2004 it'll look completely different i remember the excitement when when the hilton was built the beetham tower they've got They've got a tree on the top floor in there. Like it was like something from another place. It didn't feel like Manchester, did it? And the the clamour to get in Cloud Twenty Three to go and have a cocktail, even if you didn't like cocktails, you just had to go up and sort of point out the window at what you could see. Um, Manchester's changed, hasn't it? In that sense, definitely. It, the, the skyline's unrecognisable, really, and isn't it from when we were kids? Definitely. Yeah, I did that Snake Pass image um, at the start of December. And I'd been to a concert in Sheffield and I came over. I didn't, it was really treacherous conditions to drive in. So I pulled over at midnight and took a picture. I tweeted the picture and I thought, it's pretty dangerous you what pictures. you're doing it. And, and I thought it was worth it. I thought, if I die on this hill, then it's a hill worth dying on literally and metaphorically because I've just got <laughs> Manchester in front of me. I like all the, um, the bleeping red lights because the only city I'd seen with those was, was Tokyo. And, and it's changed so much. I noticed a big change around, well, there was the mid-90s, because Manchester was a pretty tough place in the 80s. The Commonwealth Games was was a, a really big deal. I noticed that for Manchester. But I'm forever defending Manchester. People, when I travel, are asking me about it and saying, yeah, it's, I like the music from Manchester, I like the football, but it's not much of a city. And I, 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 no, it's, it's, it's a good city. It's, it's changed a lot. It's really good and... Remember being in the tourist information in Munich when I was interrailing 
93 and the lady said where are you from just just for, out of interest we make a note i said manchester uh, england and she said I'm, I'm really sorry i said why she said my husband's <laughs> been working there she said it's a terrible industrial city no it's not no it's not and we're going for the Olympics. I was really like defensive about it. And even now, I've seen a picture of you with a flag about the Olympics. I think. Yeah, oh no, I did. I, I, yeah. I got in touch with the organising committee for the Manchester Olympics because I, I felt that um, the evening news wasn't covering it properly, and that we were falling behind Sydney and Beijing. And knowing what I do now, Manchester didn't have a chance. And Manchester isn't Beijing, and it's not Sydney. So I went no. down to the um, headquarters and persuaded them to give me a massive flag, which I promised <laughs> to take to Manchester United away games. And, and I did do. I got all my mates on it and accused them of not being loyal to Manchester if they didn't unfurl this massive Manchester 2000 flag. And I got that wrapped up in the hysteria that on the night of the announcement, I really thought Manchester was going to win the Olympic Games, despite the London press mocking Manchester's limited hotels. Uh, which they were quite right to do because there was like one holiday By the in. Way, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was, I was gutted. I was. Um, we went, we went to a party. I think at Castlefield. Yeah, I was there, mate. And they had like, yeah. My mum and dad took me down to like sort of like watch the, uh, watch the disappointment unfold in the end. Carl, aren't you glad you're back? <laughs> I mean, this is why I talk with the Devils is so great. You know, you come for the United coverage, you end up. Again, just stunning recollections of Mancunian history. Yeah, absolutely. And, and chat about skyscrapers now. So if nothing else, mate, it's good to have you back because it's prompted some <laughs> classic Andy Mitten tales. Right, OK, coming up, no more talk of skyscrapers, unfortunately, but we will be previewing Manchester United's FA Cup tie against Middlesbrough at Old Trafford on Friday and recalling our memories down by the riverside down the years in the Premier League. Uh, sticking with the North East as well, there's reports linking Roy Keane with a return to management at Sunderland. We'll talk about that and we'll also let you know how the United lads have been getting on on international duty around the world too. Uh, Carl, first up, Manchester United are playing football again on Friday. This is exciting, isn't it? Is it? I mean, intrigued by Manchester United now and in, in sort of mm. like, okay, what, what, what are you going to do next? How are you going to... Uh, what tactic, what formation, what odd thing is Ralph Rangit going to throw in for me to try and get my head around? Uh, I've had two or three occasions now where I've watched United in the pub and I've got to that stage where, you know, when you use some pint glasses and ketchup bottles to sort of do like, what's he doing? What's the shape? So yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued for Manchester United in, in these next three games. So it's, it's Middlesbrough Friday and then Burnley on Tuesday, which I think that one's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, Carl, you've been writing about sort of Manchester United under under Randnick. Um, the headline, fewer dramatic comebacks and smarter shooting. Um, but obviously there's a lot more in that piece. So go and have a look at that if you're interested on The Athletic at the minute. But in terms of your take on Rangnick, really, this is the first time we've spoken to you since he's been in charge. What, what do you make of it all? Because um, we're still scratching our heads a little bit, aren't we? I'm scratching my head a bit as well. Uh, the press conference experience with Ralph Rangnick is a marked contrast to Oligon and Solskjaer where Solskjaer was very much you know he'd protect his players and, and circle the wagons and whatnot Rangnick is very German in his candidness and how frank he is if you ask him a question um, and there have been two or three times where he's given an answer to a question that I've thought if Manchester United don't get a result this weekend what you've said here will get you in trouble I think he's a very intelligent man we know he's quite combustible from his history in German football we know that in German football, he had a reputation for being, quote-unquote, a bit of a nerd rather than someone who enjoyed football. And I don't think that backlash has started in England yet. But I do get a bit concerned that, you know, if United 
don't get a great result against Middlesbrough or if Wout Weghurst, the six foot six striker that Burnley have just signed, ends up, you know, annihilating Lindelof at the back post or something, then uh, the accusations that Ralph Rangit doesn't get football might rear its head. But for now, I'm going, okay, this is vaguely sensible. Yeah, and they've been okay, haven't they, I think? We've, we've had our ups and downs, certainly, in the 10 matches so far. Uh, but one of the things you picked up on about comebacks, United haven't really had to come back. I mean, they've gone behind twice in 10 matches. Um, one of those games was late on against Wolves where they didn't have much time to be able to come back. And of course, against Newcastle, they managed to get a draw in the end. But yeah, the whole idea of the dramatic comeback being 2-0 down at half-time has been a thing of the past, really, hasn't it, under Rangnick? Although that might say something about the opposition that Manchester United have had during this time as well. You're raising your eyebrows, Carl. Yeah, he hasn't played anyone. I talked to Adam Crafton uh, the other week on a TIFO video and we looked at the results and it was like, yeah, you know, the defence is good. The attack is not as good as it was under Oli. Yeah. And the results are good, but also they haven't played any difficult opposition. Atletico Madrid aren't having a great season and I know you can speak a bit more about that, but going into that Champions League tie, I think, you know, Atletico Madrid may be slim favourites for that one. I'm okay. It's that thing of, you know, he came in and tried to do this really advanced 4 2 2 2 system that I went oh look I know exactly how this works as a Southampton and then and now 10 games later I'm thinking he's probably going to do 4-2-3-1 get the ball to Bruno and just play counter-attacking football so not much will change I think by the end of the season yeah he's worked it out hasn't he (laughs) (laughs) right let's talk about United Middlesbrough because this has been a a brilliant fixture down the years in, in the Premier League years, full of memories for Manchester United. What's the first thing that springs to mind, Andy, when you think of United Middlesbrough? Uh, League Cup semi-final, 92, um, home and away. I think a higher percentage of United fans travelled to that away game by coach. There were 106 coaches parked behind the away end. Given that did you get a picture? Given that I didn't, mate, I wasn't that much of a nerd then. I probably would have been for the take of the camera. <laughs> But just the fact that I know that, I suppose, makes me really, really nerdy. Cause I'm not saying anything. Because the yeah. streets behind Ayrson Park, the old ground, were really tight terrace streets. And I think so many people travelled by coach there. A, it was a night game uh, and it was difficult to get back by, by train. And C, it, it was dangerous. It was a dangerous place. And I remember that night, the public address announcer saying... I'd like, I've got a little message for all you fair weather Middlesbrough fans who've turned up because it's Man United in the semi-final of the Cup. Middlesbrough Football Club does actually play games every two weeks at Ayrson Park and you are allowed to come <laughs> and the next game's against Barnsley. And I thought it was hilarious because it was it was also true. And then the game back at Old Trafford was a, an epic game and had one of the best atmospheres, one of the top 10 atmospheres ever, I, I think. Um I took a girlfriend. I think it's the only time I've taken a girlfriend to a match or one of the few times. And um, she wasn't really into football and even she was impressed. The strep for them was bouncing. That was the night that Ferguson's Red and White Army really, really took off. And for other memories, well, United won the league at Middlesbrough in 96. That was where the song Down by the Riverside came from. And they moved to the new stadium uh, by them. And... Brian Robson, who'd left Manchester United to manage there and it's still very popular in Teesside. And yeah, I remember seeing one of my mates, Grant, crying because United won the league, thinking, what's wrong with you? And it was just emotion. And I'm thinking, you mad ass. But <laughs> it obviously meant a lot to him <laughs> and fair enough. Yeah, that's the first title win that I remember. I remember like bits of the other wins, but I, what was I, uh, nine years old when United won the league at 
at the Riverside Stadium. And I just remember the day. I remember where we were. We watched it at home. I remember the fact the curtains had to be shut because it was a really bright day and no one could see the telly if the curtains were open. I remember having a big banner with my mate and uh, my dad outside the house having a picture taken with it that Manchester United were champions. Um, I remember David May in the blue and white shirt celebrating a very rare goal and sort of having the shirt ripped off his back almost in celebration. It just brings really fond memories back for me United against Middlesbrough for some reason. What springs to your mind, Carl? A bit of an odd one, but it was um, 2008. It must have been April time where United drew 2-2. Yeah. Uh, so United are in their all-black kit. And this is, you know, peak United, peak modern United. This is the last great Fergie team. It's the one that wins the Champions League that season. It's Rooney, Ronaldo, Carlos Tevez. And they draw to all against Middlesbrough. On It was meant to be pretty much a procession of a title race at this point in time. Alfonso Alves, who pretty much didn't do much in Middlesbrough, gets two goals. Uh, and United, you know, they go to one down and Rooney eventually gets one in the 74th minute. But I do remember watching this game going, they haven't won here. They've drawn and I'm really annoyed. I'm really annoyed they haven't beaten Middlesbrough. And it was that weird moment where like, the things in my brain clicked and I went, I'm probably watching the best team on the planet right now. And the off day is they draw against Middlesbrough. And that game, maybe it was because United aren't in you know their normal kit. Maybe because it was just the this, this strange sight of someone like Alfonso Alves who doesn't do much against anyone else finally getting a goal against Manchester United. But that game and watching the match today highlights of that game, because the highlights were very much like, yeah, United drew, but they're going to win the league and they're probably going to win the Champions League. It was so, their greatness was so total and so normalised at that point that you could just shrug off two drop points. And that always stuck in my mind. I'd love to get to a point where United can draw against a team like, yeah, it's fine. We'll still win the league. We'll still win the Champions League that season. Middlesbrough won at Old Trafford in the treble season in the league game. I remember it because it was, it was on my birthday. It, it was 3-2 and Brian Dean uh, scored. Brian was, um, was a Leeds lad and... Manchester United weren't his uh, favourite team. Scored the first ever Premier League goal, didn't he, against Again, yeah, Manchester Sheffield United? Brian United. So, and I remember another game at Old Trafford when it was rained so heavily against Middlesbrough. And remember him when they came up in the late 80s, bringing a huge following. And they're going to bring a massive following on Friday night, 9,500 tickets. I think it's great that. And I spoke to a few Borough fans and they're so looking forward to it. Not so much the, I think it's £45, £46 that Manchester United charge which is a lot of money I think it's too much and Middlesbrough is is famous for many things but it's not a wealthy area and I think that should be taken into consideration I know a couple of things on on the current Middlesbrough team because I've been doing some research the best player is Paddy McNair who was at Manchester United and that's by is it he is according to the people I speak to who watch them every week Paddy McNair is Middlesbrough's uh, best best player and Chris Wilder who has gone in there as manager is um, doing really well and they could come up this year back into the Premier League. But someone I know is friends with Chris Wilder and he said when he came up with Sheffield United, he was looking forward to coming to Old Trafford more than any other ground. And he was gutted that it was behind closed doors, that it was the COVID. And Sheffield United actually won the match. So he'd probably be That was pleased. the longest press conference yeah. I have seen from a manager that season. Yeah. So, you know, what Wilder's was. Wilder doesn't, you know, I mean, Sheffield United weren't great last season. Yeah. Last season? 
It was last yeah, season. Yeah, it was last, last season. season. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> so many games. He does, he does. Oh, you know, most losing managers come to Old Trafford. They want to be in and out in ten minutes. But after that game, I, he answered questions for well over twenty-five minutes. Enjoying the moment, considering the way the first half of that season had gone for Sheffield yeah. United. I'm surprised he's not still there in some way. <laughs> talking about, I it. think he also knew he was going to lose his job. So I just thought he's going to he's just going to completely milk it. And fair play to him. And he's really, really looking forward to bringing a team to Old Trafford finally where there's going to be fans there. And, and hopefully his team will not win like, like last time. But no, I'm, I'm, they're, I'm in, they're in really good form, Andy, aren't they're, they're they? In really... They're in great form. Eight, eight wins out of the last ten. Uh, I think they've only lost one of the last ten as well away at Blackburn. So it might be tough this, might it, it? It could be because they are in form and I'm not watching them every week. I just speak to people who do and... After the draw was made, I've just been getting lots of information. The, the, the nine and a half thousand fans are coming. It's a huge away following. They're going to be totally up for it. And I'm really looking forward to it as, as a cup tie. I'm just glad, having seen how tight the third round was, that Manchester United are in the fourth round of the FA Cup. Carl, what do you think the team will be for United? Do you think it's going to be pretty strong? Or could you see a sort of sprinkling of, of Dean Henderson and... Uh, a couple of other fringe players maybe sort of thrown in, Nemanja Matic, people like that. I would really like Dean Henderson to start, but at this point in time... Would you? Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, there's a there's a parallel universe where Dean Henderson doesn't get injured at the end of last season. He goes to the Euros. He might, you know, depending on how training goes, he might be the starting England goalkeeper for Euro 2020. He doesn't get covid during preseason, does the preseason games and continues his run as United's starting goalkeeper. But he's just the worst luck has happened at all these personal moments for him. And now, I mean, you can probably say he's the last year, maybe 18 months of his Manchester United career have been mothballed and he needs a new club. He needs game time. He needs it's something. He's too good to just sit on the bench at this point in time. So if you give him a game against Middlesbrough United get a decent cup run. That'd be quite nice. Matic, I'm not going to start saying start Matic because every time I do, he do, he plays and has a game where you go, I forgot how old you are. So I'm not going to say that. I would be interested to see um, if uh, the returning players from the African Cup of Nations get a bit of game time. I am particularly interested in Hannibal Medjury. Okay. Expand, please. Well, we know Ralph Rangnick says he's going to join first team training going forward. And Hannibal has been the highlight of United's on the 23 team for quite some time. He's I've never seen a player get kicked as much as Hannibal in, in a United shirt. He gets routinely beaten up in those on the 23 games because he's got a bit of a temper. He's a bit passionate. And I think quite a few, especially the, uh, the bigger teams in Premier League 2, have figured out that if you want Hannibal to not have a great game, if you, you know give him a little reducer tackle, let him know he's there early, he might get a yellow card or he might get sent off, which has happened before. But he's calmed that down. Uh, I know Neil Wood has tried playing him in a deeper role in midfield now as a number eight, which also made me start thinking, hang on, could you possibly play in the pivot? So I think he's quite interesting. I don't think he's he's as good as someone like a, a Paul Pogba, but I think he's got a decent ball-carrying ability. I think he's uh, an imaginative passer at the moment. I know you can you can make the sort of passes that you're thinking, okay, yeah, you, you want to play it forward as much as possible. So... I'm not saying Hannibal's going to come in and play 15 Premier League games before the end of the season and get six or seven things, but if he gets maybe you know 10, 20 minutes and then possibly starts against some of the football clubs that want to play on the deck rather than want to do what Burnley do, 
I think he could be a nice little unplanned variable in the same way Anthony Alanger is. Uh, Andy, anyone you'd like to see given a chance against Borough? I think some of the fringe players will play and I don't have a problem with that. And I know that the way United are looking at, they call it a block of games now. So you've had this break and a quite agreeable start to the block. Middlesbrough at home, Manchester United really should win that. Burnley away. And then the real tough game start. But it is pretty relentless from now on. So next week, Burnley, Southampton at home. The Brighton game's been moved. Leeds away, Atletico away, Watford at home. And then you go into March where you've got the tough teams. Because as Carl quite rightly said, Manchester United have not really played many top teams under Ralph Rangnick. And the results have been okay. They've been good. The performances have not been as good as the results. And maybe we were boosted by those two recent wins. But before that, the mood was on the floor. It really was among fans because the team were not playing well at all. And even when the team were getting results, didn't play well against Norwich and won. And there was a lot of worries about the way Manchester United have been playing. So I think that if Ralph Rangnick wants to play some of the fringe players... No problem with that. But I still think he'll put a strong team out because the FA Cup is a competition that Manchester United really should be trying to win this year. The league's not going to be won. It's now going to be five years since United have won any trophy. And the FA Cup is a big deal to fans. Just I was watching Liverpool and Chelsea fans talking about Wembley in the Carabao Cup this week. I think tickets have gone on sale. And I was a bit, je- Getting jealous. I was a bit jealous, yeah. Yeah, a bit envious, you know, a day in London, 30,000, 35,000 fans. Feels like a long time ago. Yeah, now, it's a long it? time ago from when we used to call it Old Trafford South and from when <laughs> there was a lot of people saying, well, I can't go to Wembley this time because it's the fourth time this season or the third time this season. That's a long time ago. So I'd love Manchester yeah. United to win the FA Cup. Yeah, even a semi-final, actually. A trip down there <laughs> for a semi-final would be quite nice, wouldn't it? Especially considering... You know, there's been a big gap where fans have not even been able to be at games. Yeah, absolutely. I feel a bit jealous as well now you've said it. When you're under the cosh, and Man United are under the cosh today in the first half, which is fine, but you stay in the fight. You're on the ropes, but you've got to keep swinging. Go and close somebody down. I've often had it where I've not been at the races in a game where I go, do you know what? What I might do is I might, I might smash into somebody just to make me feel better. So some news just into us then and it uh, regards Roy Keane. He is set to be interviewed for the Sunderland manager's vacancy. The club are extremely interested in Keane returning to the club that he left 13 years ago. Yeah, great story this, isn't it? Sunderland fans will be excited. They've already signed Jermaine Defoe back as centre-forward on deadline day. Now it looks like Roy Keane could be on his way back as manager. Let's talk about Roy Keane then, because this would be quite a sensational return to management, wouldn't it? I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's over 10 years since Roy Keane was a manager, Andy. You've written a lot about him down the years, and there's a couple of brilliant archive articles on Roy Keane on The Athletic. One from 2020 from Adam Crafton, describing firsthand from players' accounts what it's like to be managed by Roy Keane. That's a fascinating read, including some sort of grenades to wake people up in the morning (laughs) on some army trip, which was... um, Quite a read. And Andy, you wrote as well with Danny Taylor, Roy Keane at 50 uh, last year, uh, an account of, of of the man himself, basically. Do you think do you think he should be back as a manager, despite the fact it's been so long? What do you make of it all? He didn't want it to be for so long. And he has been an assistant during that time. And he's always maintained that he wants to get back into management. 
and that the TV stuff was just something that he'd been coaxed into. He quite enjoyed it. I think he's enjoyed it a lot more in in recent years. I think he's very entertaining. I think he's good value. But he's always said, I want to get into management. And I think he's been quite reflective, saying, I, I didn't really use the media. I don't want to use the media to try and put my name into positions. And I think the reason he's not got into uh, management is because he didn't do well at Ipswich Town. And now he's been linked with Sunderland. So maybe we talk about Roy at Sunderland. He did really well there. He went there yeah. in August uh, 06. Niall Quinn had been manager. They'd lost the first three games of the season. And he arrived and turned Sunderland round completely within months and got them promoted to the Premier League. And I can remember in 06 talking to people that about Roy Keane being a realistic candidate to take over Sir Alex Ferguson. Now, this is all always about timing, but he was talked of in those levels at that time. And then Sunderland eventually started to unravel and he left to Ipswich. He didn't do well at Ipswich. He spent a lot of money at Ipswich. And he'll say that he's learned a lot of lessons from his time at Ipswich. I'd love to see him back in management. I find him fascinating as, as a person. The last thing is, he's cliched. Um, I don't know what state Sunderland are in beyond looking at why are they in the third tier? Why are they going to be in the third tier yet again? It's a huge football club. He knows the club. He took a lot of people from Manchester United when he went there. Not just players, the people like Andy Cole and, and Dwight York, but people, backroom staff. Um, uh, Ricky Schradger went there Michael Clegg went there and I think Raymond van der Gaal was going to go there and he also tried to get Diego Forlan and he <laughs> rang him up and said Diego I know you're at Villarreal I know you're doing alright I know you like the beach and all that we've got a brilliant beach here at Sunderland <laughs> <laughs> which actually is true it is a brilliant beach at Sunderland Okay, just not sunny every day there no. And Diego laughed and, and, and passed on it. But I don't know. What do you think, Carl? Would you like to see Roy come back into management? Something I've, I've thought a lot about, and I've sort of snuck it into a couple of articles about Paul Pogba, comes from uh, the World Cup coverage, not the World Cup coverage, the Euro coverage that we saw where Keane was next to Patrick Vieira. And they were both talking about how Paul Pogba is and why he's better for France than he is for Manchester United. And Keane very much described it always, you know, problems in Pogba's personality. Just saying, he hasn't got the right application. He doesn't really focus himself, and this and this and this and this. And Patrick Rivera very much described it as a form of tactics and a form of personnel, and said it was really complicated. And I remember watching that and thinking, Roy Keane's perspective is why Roy Keane won more trophies than Patrick Vieira. Patrick Vieira's perspective is why Patrick Vieira is going to be a better football manager. If Roy Keane wants to be a football manager again and can get a role in, I think that'd be great for football because while I do enjoy his. Uh, banter with Michael Richards. I do know he wants to be a football manager, but I, I do have question marks over his return to the game, especially after such a long period out. It sort of became the accepted opinion that Roy got frustrated with managing players who couldn't do things that he could do. Mm. I, I, I've seen it repeated so many times, even in um, Adam's article about what it's like to be managed by Roy Keane. There's a couple of sort of notable people who were around um the clubs that, that Keane was at and said exactly the same thing, that he seemed frustrated that players couldn't see what he could see and couldn't couldn't complete the the sort of technical aspects of, of playing football that, that he could do. Um, 
and and obviously you know it ties into what you're saying Carl as well about sort of the the approach to man management and things like that but there is some detail in that uh, Adam Crafton piece about the other side of Roy Keane buying meals for people when they didn't expect little gestures here and there little words here and there and I wonder as well, Andy, we've seen a different Roy Keane in recent times on the television. And, and admittedly, it's on the TV. It's, it's, you know, it's once a week in a, in a TV studio. It's not every day down a training ground and very close contact and so on. But he does seem to have mellowed a little bit. And, and it was interesting listening to him talk to Gary Neville on, on that overlap uh, YouTube video that was posted a few months ago, where he sort of said, other managers had five, six, seven eight, nine, ten chances to get back into management. And for some reason, everyone made their mind up on me and I got one or two chances and that was it. Even that to sort of address how he feels uh, and maybe see if he has changed or mellowed at all with age will will be interesting to watch from afar, won't it? It will be. There's a couple of things. His box office. So that video you mentioned with Gary Neville, Gary's done interviews with other A-list footballers None of them have done anything like as well as the one with Roy Keane. He's, he's absolutely fascinating. It's captivating. I don't think it's just because I'm a, a you know United fan that I find it captivating either. Roy Keane is a captivating character, the way he speaks, the way the little looks he gives and things like that, even some of the asides. He's genuinely funny as well, yeah, isn't he? He's incredibly good at deadpan. To, I mean, there were two, two or three moments in that video of Gary Neville where he's so good at keeping a straight face. <laughs> that you can yeah. tell his, his brain's gone, I'll say this, I'll keep a straight face. Gary will know I'm, take, I'm taking the mick. Like a couple of United fans will know I'm taking the mick, but I know two or three, or the aggregators or whatnot, will, will quote this verbatim and put this elsewhere. And he, he's done that two or three times before. He's witty. He's witty. Yeah. He's intelligent. He's, uh, football's changed since he last managed, and I think he'll have to change as well. And I think he needs, you need friends in football. Jobs don't just jump out. Very, very different. There's so many people want to be football managers, big, big names who cannot get jobs. And you need friends. And I see his relationship now with Gary. It's stronger now than it was five years ago. There is a relationship there. There's a, a genuine friendship there. They're doing the shows uh, together. Uh, I'll certainly watch Sunderland a lot more or pay a lot more attention to them if he goes back there. But there's so many stories about him which reflect really really well on him but also as Carl says ones where you think you just couldn't get away with that now and be that whether he's born out of frustration because players can't do what he could do or whether he was just right because one of the things he used to do if someone came up and asked him for a selfie or an autograph if they asked him politely there would be no issue if they barged into him he'd quite rightly in my opinion tell him where to go and a lot of people would look the other way and he just thinks he's got his values he's absolutely his own man and he'll be very frank about Sir Alex Ferguson now Ferguson is the man who write who because he was the victor can write his version of history but Roy Keane has also got his version of history and he's entitled to that opinion and he's still young um, he's very big family man I hear a lot of good things about him in the area that he, that he lives in and as a journalist I don't think I've ever interviewed anyone as interesting as Roy Keane in, in 30 odd years so to summarise we want to see him back at Sunderland don't we i tell you what a counter question for you if he does it do you think that Netflix show Sunderland Till I Die will continue I'd like to see the conversation where Netflix sit down with Roy Keane and say 
Right. We want you. Because he's box office. He absolutely is. I mean, imagine him going there. The idea of... Do you think he's more aware of that now than he was before? He's got to be. He's got... Because it will be to his detriment if he's not. Mm. And I know lads who played under him at Sunderland. And they have mixed opinions about him. Fundamentally, they think he's a good person. They, they, They trust him. But so blunt and so brutally honest... Uh, but yeah, Netflix with Roy Keane at Sunderland. I think Netflix recent woes about subscribers turning <laughs> off or their stock market going down could be quickly reversed if they could sign that one. There was a, a little excerpt actually in that Gary Neville chat where he talked about starting his Instagram account as well. Uh, and he sort of said to Gary, um, people were asking me like, who looks after your Instagram? What company are you using? You know, all this sort of stuff. He's like, my daughter does it. Like, <laughs> What do you mean? We're going to post? Like, do you mean we're going to have? Are we going to take a picture? Like, just sort of broke down all the sort of like mystique and an industry around sort of someone managing a social media account. So, it just needs to get her to go and have a word with Netflix, I think, and she'll get it all sorted out. I imagine if she can get Roy Keane to open an Instagram account and start posting, I think she can do anything. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Right, on the podcast earlier on this week, we were talking about our excitement at Ahmad continuing his record of scoring on his debut for his new team Rangers. Well, I'm not sure what his record is in the second match for Atalanta and Manchester United off the top of my head, but I do know his second match at Rangers led to them being 3-0 down in the old firm derby against Celtic at half-time at Celtic Park and Ahmad being taken off, uh, which is quite an experience. Jordan Campbell, who covers Rangers and Scottish football for the Athletic, told us just before we recorded this that he looked lost. Uh, it's not a surprise, though, Jordan says, as Premier League loan players who haven't played much senior football tend to struggle up here with the intensity of the game. We expected him to start as Rangers needed a right winger. And in fairness, he was good on his debut, which, of course, we were talking about uh, the other day as well. I mean, Carl, a bit disappointing experience this for Ahmad, but part of this is about adapting to senior football, going out on loan and having these experiences and, and learning from them. Absolutely. You think he's played maybe a handful of senior level games since breaking onto the scene in the Atalanta youth team. Uh, I, you know, at the, by the time Manchester United signed him last summer, I thought this gentleman's too good for under 23 football. He'll be, he'll be a starting football player in January. And then I saw a couple of games and I was going to Solskjaer and it, you got the impression that Solskjaer saw a talent in Ahmad, but very much looked at him, you know, five foot six, five foot seven, maybe, you know, 100 pounds 150 pounds soaking wet and thought I can't put you in senior team football we've got to wait for you to get your man body you know to use a, an American term and I think this is the big thing now and the the talent there is, techni- is there the technical talent he's got really good dribbling skill one thing that always struck me about Ahmad is he's very good receiving the ball he's back to goal and then immediately spinning the defender which is quite hard to do when you're running at pace uh, his uh you know, half yard of pace isn't explosive, but pretty clever. And it's just a case of you got to put those things together against lads that aren't afraid of hurting you and aren't afraid of getting a yellow card to stop you from getting to top speed. 
and uh, I think that's that's the challenge for this loan deal. He will have good games. He will probably have some bad games as well. Uh, and his resilience will be the big thing there. Andy, what about that experience last night for him? I'll never forget it. I think it's, gr- I no, think it's great, actually. This is a re- one of the reasons why he's gone there, and we we said on the last podcast, he'll be playing in front of 50,000 at Ibrox. Well, actually, he was playing in front of 60,000 at Parkhead. Celtic battered Rangers in the first half. I saw a little bit of it on television. The place was bouncing. He'll never, ever forget that. And when one of those two grounds in Glasgow is like that, players never forget it. You can speak to some of the best players in the world and they will always pick out Celtic Park. I'm thinking a lot of them Barcelona players from the Guardiola team as a place where they experience the the best atmosphere. And I, I did a book on derby games from around the world and the Glasgow derby, the old firm, is, 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 is top three. It's incredible. And if you're going to be a top, top player, you're going to go to some stadiums which are going to be very hostile and some players thrive off it and some players wilt with that pressure. Plenty of Manchester United players from the 90s will say that Galatasaray away in 93 was the best atmosphere they played in front of and it was really, really intimidating. Uh, I think for Ahmad, it was a baptism of fire there, absolutely. And it's not going to be like that again. And it will help him settle in and I just think he can, he can learn from it. Rangers, from what I saw, were pretty poor. Celtic were, were fantastic in that first half and it's why he's gone there. I'd much rather him experience that than a 23s game in front of one man and his dog. I think it's the real world and I think it, good can come from it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's obviously not been the only Manchester United player in action over the last few days. There's been lots of players away on international duty as well. You've both written a fair amount, actually, about Facundo Palestri. And actually, we saw firsthand in his uh, appearance for Uruguay exactly what he can do, Carl. That assist was, was was fantastic, wasn't it? It was quite fun. We got a message in the Slack channel from Ed Malian, who at midnight he said, uh, when you wake up, you might want to give this a look. So woke up, watched the whole thing. I went, oh, that's that's why Ollie was intrigued by him. It's a nice little mazy run he does. And he's a fun contrast to Ahmad. They were signed in the same window. And, and if Ahmad's skill when dribbling is back to goal, spin the defender, Pelestri's thing is uh, his hips he's really he's got a good sense of balance to him and even though he's only five foot seven and not the you know physically strongest he's really good at making sure a defender or a fullback when they try and tackle him he can get his body in the way protect it he's got a little nice little switch of feet for the assist there and he's a player where I'm not totally sure if he's going to be a United player for the next five or six years but I can very easily see Manchester United doing a good bit of business for him and him being a good football player for a good football club in Europe. Also, really fun thing about South American qualifying, the table. Like, Colombia, probably not going to the World Cup. Didn't know. Didn't know until I saw the result. The South American World Cup group is the toughest in the world. No, 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 no. That's still Africa. (laughs) I think that you have factors in South America like games being played at altitude and the relative strength of all the teams makes it a real, real tough one. You've got a team like Colombia. Look, you're smiling here now. can't believe we're going to have an argument over which World nah, Cup. I'm, Nothing I'm to do still, with Man United. I'm, I'm still saying... I'm it. quite happy for you to have an argument. I'm, I'm, still America. I'm still saying it's CAF. You've got five things and you look at the playoffs right now. For the, I'm think CAF is w- just a bit harder. Right. <laughs> Go on, Carl, sell it. 
Well, if you, I know you talk about the comparative. Why is Andy wrong? So yes, I understand comparative strengths, uh, but if you look at South American qualifying on every given qualifier, you've got at least two teams who are a lock. So yeah, there's four four max slots, one playoff slot. Two of those slots are going to go to Brazil, Argentina. So it's a case of getting maybe ten or eight into three slots, which okay, interesting. Yeah, I understand you talk about altitude, and I've I've been to Bolivia, I've ran out of breath walking up the stairs and I've ran up breath walking down the street and I understand why that's really hard, but the Bolivian national team isn't allowed to play right at altitude, well, at the highest altitude that they used to to make Messi have to get an ambulance, so that's lower. Uh, I think while there is some, there are some rivalries and I don't want to downplay those rivalries, I think the amount of rivalries you can get in CAF qualification and the potential for, for that is a bit higher, so... Listeners may know I'm of Ghanaian heritage. Ghana's biggest rival is Nigeria. We're going to play each other in the playoff in March. And I've just told everyone at the Athletic that you can't talk to me for that week. I'm off. I'm off. I'm going home for that one. Uh, and not to say that those, those things don't happen in South American, but I th- South American qualifying. But I think because there's only one real playoff game, rather than the three or four that you get in African qualifying, I think you're either in or out in South American qualifying, whereas there is such a, a wider nebula zone of maybes and playoffs that makes African qualifying that much harder. Which, of course, I mean, if you want to you know, be a bit conspiracy theorist, is probably by design by uh, your man Infantino and uh, Seb Blatter to make these qualifying sessions so hard. So then when they turn around and say, actually, do you want to have a World Cup every two years? Makes it easier for you to get to World Cup. So that those are my theories on qualification. All right, I, I respect them. I'll give you my theories now on the South American group. Um, I think the standards really high. Look at the score lines in the matches. The, you don't mm-hmm. get many trouncings at all. I think that for only four qualify automatically, and teams that have gone through the qualifier, Uruguay had to go through a qualifier and then reach the semi-finals of the World Cup in two thousand and ten. You had the altitude. Hey, hey, why are you going to bring that one up? <laughs> Angle. I'm uh, Ghanaian. You well. know how painful that is. Oh, sorry. It was as well. I'm really sorry. It's true Jesus. that. <laughs> well, everyone wanted Ghana to win that. Oh, oh Which no, means forget. it's even harder for South American teams fair. because. All right. Yeah, yeah, fair play. You've got me there. <laughs> um, and you have results. I remember Ecuador going to Buenos Aires and beating Argentina 2 um, 0. And I think the standard from the players I, I've I've interviewed uh, have played in it um, say that it, it has increased a lot primarily because so many South American players have gone to the top leagues in Europe and they've picked up good good habits I think when the players go there to play the best players they're not starting that journey in Buenos Aires or Sao Paulo they're starting it in Manchester and Liverpool so you've got to factor in the, the jet lag as well and then they meet up with the teammates and they fly over the Andes and it's interesting. I'm glad we're talking about this because there is a world outside of of Premier League football. But I really did not mean to mention Uruguay, <laughs> Ghana from 2000. Andy, it's not your fault. It's Asamoah Gyan, isn't it? Oh, you know what I mean. So you were... painful. Uh, I will say Very one calm. thing is uh, um, Luis Suarez got the fourth goal for Uruguay against Venezuela. That was a penalty won by Palestri. That took uh, Suarez to the highest goal scorer in World Cup qualifying in South America, 28 goals, which feels really low. So maybe Andy is correct. And, and the, the final point is a lot of the rivalries are neighbours. So obviously Argentina 
and Brazil are big rivals, but so is Uruguay oh, yeah. with with both of them as well. And Paraguay, because they're landlocked between them. Well, they've been to war with those countries, so they've got a big beef. And Chile, they're really suspicious of Argentina, especially the after Paraguay the Falklands War. And Bolivia as well. I, when I was in Bolivia, I was on a bus tour, and I, there was a very nice Australian woman that said, has, uh, has, Par- uh, has Bolivia got any beaches? And uh, the bus tour went, we used to, Paraguay took it. Exactly. Which, uh, I mean, yeah, that's that's a pretty spicy one. Colum- Colombia <laughs> against Venezuela, then you, you throw in Ecuador as well. So they've all, all these regional rivalries where traditionally Argentina have been seen as the 10 men. And the Uruguayans don't like the Argentinians because they come to their beaches and sit on Punta del Este every year. And the southern Brazilians don't like the Argentinians because they come to Florinopolis and they take their... Um, they put the beach towels down before the Brazilians. So it, it's absolutely fascinating that football can be a backdrop to all of these these rivalries. Talk of the Devils yet again taking you to places that I just never expected. <laughs> I thought the 33rd floor in a Manchester skyscraper was going to be the high point of this podcast, but absolutely not. We've ended on a high there, haven't we? Brilliant, right. I need to point out as well, there's some lovely articles on The Athletic about South American qualifying. Andy Mitten's... Re- uh, read them already I think based on what he's just been saying um, you can read about Palestri's performance for Uruguay Edison Cavani scored in that game as well Alex Tellez played for Brazil in a, in a 4-0 victory over Paraguay in South American qualifying too but the, the sort of story that captivated me the most during this international break for Manchester United was Zidane Iqbal it's the third time that we've mentioned him now on the podcast but he played again for Iraq against Lebanon Um, this week and of course that's now two caps during this international break making his debut against Iran and there's a read there on The Athletic by Laurie Whitwell um, exactly on Zidane's background his experience with the international team there's some lovely detail about Dick Advocar phoning his dad to try and get him to play for Iraq because he also was eligible to play for Pakistan through his dad and also for England, of course, because he was born here in Manchester. And just just a lovely story, I think. His piece, anyway, on Zidane Iqbal's brilliant uh, Z to his friends, as he's known. Um, <laughs> and just a story about um, choosing Iraq, uh, his background. He still is extremely willing, it seems, to be a role model as well, because, of course, he was the first... A British South Asian to play for Manchester United when he made his debut against Young Boys uh, and he wants to be someone for people to follow he wants to be a trailblazer but his feet are firmly on the ground he knows that he needs to improve as a player he knows that he keeps needing to make progress himself in order to be that breakthrough star for United because for people of a, a similar background he's an absolute beacon so a great read on that don't forget you can get a 33% discount still off access to all these articles that we've talked about a third off a subscription to The Athletic all you need to do is go to theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod but Carl it's been great to have you back you helped take us to places we never expected Andy it's good to have you here as always because you seem to do that every single podcast at the minute Uh, And of course, listeners, it's been great to have you for company too. We'll be back on Monday to look back on Borough. See you then. Bye-bye. Athletic.